Demography is the statistical study of populations of potentially any kind of animal, but it's often more specifically applied to the study of human populations. So when we look at big groups of people and attempt to put them into smaller groups based on environmental circumstances like where they were born or in what year, but also based on habits, on education, on health and lifestyle and birth and death statistics, That's demographic information we are collecting, and demographic groups that we are creating. Demographic information is immensely useful when we're trying to figure out what the population of a country looks like, and what a government might do better to serve the various groups that live within their borders. It's also useful in terms of predicting political and consumer behavior, and as such, a great deal of demographic research is conducted or funded by entities that are hoping to learn more about groups of people so they can better sell things to those people, including political and ideological messages for which they hope to garner support. A cohort is a group of people who share a defining characteristic within the world of demography, So a group of people within a studied population who were all born within a particular town might form a cohort based on that shared attribute. A group of people who graduated in a particular year across the entire expanse of a country, likewise, would make up a cohort of people who graduated in, let's say, the year 1990 or 1964 or 2010. You might also create a cohort around a range rather than a specific year. This, if done correctly, can uncover some quite general but also potentially fairly meaningful and useful trends common to a group of people whose lives have been influenced by events and circumstances resonant with a particular age group living in a particular place at a particular time. The term baby boomer in the United States, for instance, typically refers to a group of people born between the years 1946 and 1964, those years used as bookends, because they encompass a collection of variables that were tweaked by a variety of things, but especially the ending of World War II, the aging of the so-called silent generation, a group their parents were potentially a part of, made up of people born sometime between the mid to late 1920s and the early to mid 1940s. So the silent generation on one end and culminating with the birth of Generation X, a cohort to which boomers' kids are sometimes a part of, depending on when they had kids, which includes people born from the early to mid-1960s until the early 1980s on the other end. The baby boomer generation is actually the only official generational designation used by the United States Census Bureau, and those birth years are bracketed because people born between those years are likely to have experienced a period of relative privilege and affluence due to post-war subsidies in housing and education, and the post-war boom in economic fortune in the United States in particular. There were also super high standards, compared to the standards of today at least, when it came to employment incentives and benefits, including income, but also things like healthcare and retirement benefits, alongside abundant and increasingly available and varied types of food, entertainment, styles of clothing and furniture, and other such consumer goods on the market, due to rapidly globalizing trade networks and rapidly iterating corporate models. 
they're also, importantly, defined by their immense population. After World War II, people started having babies in the United States and in many other places around the world in record numbers. And the resultant baby boom, the influx in new people brought into the world during this period, is statistically significant because of what it meant for the economy, for culture, and for the scaling up of just about everything that was necessary to account for that influx of new human beings. Generational designations of this kind are not a perfect science, but they aren't arbitrary. From a Pew Research piece entitled Defining Generations, where millennials end and Generation Z begins, quote, Unlike the boomers, there are no comparably definitive thresholds by which later generational boundaries are defined. But for analytical purposes, we believe 1996 is a meaningful cutoff between millennials and Gen Z for a number of reasons, including key political, economic, and social factors that define the millennial generation's formative years. Most millennials were between the ages of 5 and 20 when the 9-11 terrorist attacks shook the nation, and many were old enough to comprehend the historical significance of that moment, while most members of Gen Z have little or no memory of the event. Millennials also grew up in the shadow of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which sharpened broader views of the parties and contributed to the intense political polarization that shapes the current political environment. And most millennials were between 12 and 27 during the 2008 election, where the force of the youth vote became part of the political conversation and helped elect the first black president. Added to that is the fact that millennials are the most racially and ethnically diverse adult generation in the nation's history, yet the next generation, Generation Z, is even more diverse, end quote. That piece goes on to talk about the unique workforce issues millennials experienced as a consequence of entering said workforce at the height of an economic recession, and how that situation influenced everything from the relatively sluggish lifestyle launch experienced by many millennials who, in some cases, have had to return home after school because of shifts in how careers work in the age of the gig economy, to the technological landscape they've experienced, defined in large part by the emergence during their lifetimes of the internet, the web, the mobile internet, smartphones, and the massive sprawl of other accompanying technological developments and adjustments that have occurred as a consequence of the world's core communication and economic tools changing so dramatically, disrupting in turn, expectations about many facets of society, from relationships to politics. In part because of the sudden shift in just about everything, and in many cases downward, economically and in terms of asset acquisition and baseline career health, at least, the millennial generation has been much maligned by those who came before, especially by the baby boomers, with their demographics relatively fortuitous starting point, but also to a certain degree by Gen Xers, whose culture was, in the broad strokes at least, based on the stats that can be collected about this sort of thing, defined by a backlash against the optimism and abundance of the boomers' era, which in earlier decades gave the world grunge, punk, and hip-hop music, indie films, and slacker culture, but in their later years gave us entrepreneur culture, the concept of work-life balance, and, compared to the boomers anyway, a relatively higher focus on healthfulness, leading into what would have previously been our midlife crisis years. Now, though, there is a new youngest generation to pick on, a new coming-of-age generation to look down upon, to critique, to assess, to worry about, and to make broad predictions about. 
a generation that has been called many things but which, according, again, to Pew Research, is now most commonly and authoritatively referred to as Generation Z. This is the generation that comes after Millennials, which were previously called Generation Y, by the way, before the Millennial moniker caught on. So there's a chance that some other more specific designation will come along in the next decade or so, based on what's happened previously. And there's also a good chance that we'll have to figure out what to do about generational names now that we've run out of alphabet to use. Naming conventions aside, though, part of why this generational group is newly relevant is that, as of the beginning of 2019, it has a semi-official, in the sense that many research firms who collect demographic data have finally made a decision about it, not in the sense that a government entity has, it's got a semi-official birth year cut off, separating it at last from the millennial cohort, finally eliminating the fuzzy barrier between the two as the numbers for both become increasingly relevant to a variety of entities for a variety of reasons. Or said another way, from the same Pew Research piece, quote, In order to keep the millennial generation analytically meaningful, and to begin looking at what might be unique about the next cohort, Pew Research Center decided a year ago to use 1996 as the last birth year for millennials for our future work. Anyone born between 1981 and 1996, ages 23 to 38, in 2019, is considered a millennial, and anyone born from 1997 onward is part of a new generation, end quote. What I'd like to talk about today is the first truly widespread culturally resonant trend that has been made mainstream on the back of this newly minted generation. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. TikTok is an app that is predicated on short-form video, collaborative creation, and a whole lot of lip-syncing. TikTok began its life as an app called Douyin, created by a Chinese company called ByteDance for the Chinese market, back in 2016. Douyin attracted 100 million users in its first year, and those users were viewing over 1 billion videos a day. Pretty impressive numbers right out the gate. TikTok, a version of Douyin created with the international non-Chinese market in mind, was released in 2017, but really hit its stride in 2018 when it topped free app charts in countries around the world. A big part of what led to that bump in popularity was ByteDance's acquisition of another app called Musical.ly, which was developed by an eponymous Shanghai-created California-based company and released in 2014, which focused on the creation of 15-second to 1-minute music videos uploaded by users with accompanying filters and hashtags and such. ByteDance acquired Musical.ly and merged it with TikTok, creating a new app, also called TikTok, that had the functionality of both, and that integration brought in a flood of new users. As of Q1 2019, TikTok has more than 500 million active users around the world, was the third most downloaded app on iOS and Android in that same period, and garnered 188 million app downloads, which is up 70%, from Q1 of 2018. Users of TikTok spend an average of 52 minutes a day using the app, and the app is available in 155 countries thus far. And remember that stat about the 1 billion views in the first year for the Chinese TikTok originator, Douyin? 
TikTok recently accomplished that same feat beyond China. More than 1 billion videos were viewed on the app every single day of 2018. Especially interesting from the marketing and messaging perspective is that 41% of TikTok users fall within the 16 to 24-year-old age demographic, meaning that the very tail end of the millennial cohort and the bulk of the older Generation Z cohort are heavy users of this app, the heaviest of any other measured demographic group, in fact. Meaning, if you want to communicate with this age demo, TikTok is an appealing medium. And if you want to get your brand in front of today's teens and young 20-somethings, but also seen through another lens, in front of tomorrow's fully grown adults, this is the group you have to reach and measure and figure out. Lest your ideology or brand of cereal or whatever else dies out with the older generations who may be aging out of your target range or just aging out of the spendy mainstream. Those incredibly favorable numbers in mind the article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled, How TikTok Could Fail. This piece is focused on four main weak points that the app-slash-network TikTok faces, which could knock it down from its current high horse to face the same music that short-form video apps like Vine have faced in the past. But those stated vulnerabilities are couched amongst some of the things that TikTok has going for it, above and beyond the favorable audience growth, demographic situation, and recent slew of mainstream viral hits that they have experienced, like the propulsion of Lil Nas X's Old Town Road into a record-setting, longest-ever position at the top of the Billboard music charts and the capture of many prominent meme makers from other networks like Snapchat and Instagram. And as interesting as the app itself is, and it is interesting, I'd never used it personally before I started researching this episode, but as soon as I opened it, I understood the appeal of it and why the tools available in this app seem to bring out a lot of creativity in the people who use it. But as interesting as that component of this story is, a big part of what's happening here has as much to do with a single successful app as it does with tech world regulation, international relations, and soft power expansion. Before I get into those considerations, though, let's talk about the potential points of failure addressed by this Verge piece. The first is that, despite its overall enviable numbers, TikTok has a funnel problem, meaning a whole lot of people try TikTok they open it up a couple of times to see what's what, to watch some videos, maybe to film something, and then they never open it ever again. This is problematic for the company because TikTok is spending $3 million a day in advertising in the United States alone, and a lot of that money would seem to be doing very little except raising awareness that this app exists. If millions of dollars are spent on efforts that do not attract long-term users, that's not a sustainable market funnel, and thus, they may need to figure out a new way to pull people in, a new way to get people integrated early on, or a new demographic range that is more likely to be hooked from day one and to keep coming back than the group that they are currently targeting. Second is that, as stated in that Verge piece, quote, every social app is, on some level, a fad, and those that don't evolve are doomed to fade away, end quote. It then gestures toward Vine and HQ Trivia as examples of this, 
And it's true that unless it's owned by a major existing player like Facebook, many of these cool-for-a-moment apps do have a very limited half-life before they dissipate into the ether. Maybe still existing, but only as a zombie app, rather than as an active, lively, culture-defining, newsmaking app. At the moment, it's not clear that TikTok is more than a one-trick pony, and although that pony may be a lot of fun and result in some really wonderful, entertaining, even meaningful cultural moments, that doesn't mean something newer and more relevant, or even just more interesting or trendy or whatever else, won't come along and replace it before it has had the chance to experience another full year of dominance. Third, is that TikTok's success, or at the very least their prominence, at the moment I'm recording this, in August of 2019, is partly predicated on influencers and celebrities using their service. And if that ever ceases to be the case, if it was just normal people on their app lip-syncing and making short-form prank videos, chances are good that a large number of people would be less likely to show up. The center of gravity would shift to wherever those influencers and celebrities decided to drift next. And keeping such people around, people who are pros at garnering attention and pulling people in in this way, means there's got to be money or some other similar incentive available. They're professionals or aspiring professionals in many cases after all. So if someone else offers them a better deal, a monetarily relevant deal. There is a non-zero chance of that someone else getting many of these people to leave TikTok essentially overnight. This kind of exodus has happened before, and since there's currently no direct way to make money from TikTok, outside of China and the Douyin version of the app at least, this could be a substantial issue. If some other big player, like, for instance, Instagram, manages to make that happen, to figure out a business model that allows them to pay their most popular creators first. And the fourth concern is that regulators around the world are bringing the legal hammer down on all kinds of tech world entities, but especially social networks and other apps where people share their information and upload media. Those uploaded photos and videos and writings are being scrutinized. The way data is being collected and used is being scrutinized. And the various networks' management of information, fake news, and propaganda is also being looked at very closely in an effort to keep these apps from becoming, or becoming even more than they already are, amplifiers of social unrest, harassment, violence, and democratic process manipulation. Interestingly, on that last point, TikTok is actually being celebrated and bragged on by Facebook, who is pointing at their success as evidence that Facebook and their sub-brands, Instagram and WhatsApp in particular, do not represent a harmful monopoly, because other companies not owned by Facebook are still able to compete in that space and win, by some metrics at least. That same legal scrutiny is being applied to TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance, as well though and not just for the potential antitrust implications. ByteDance, being a large Chinese corporation that owns multiple lucrative assets, they're being looked at closely because, like the technology company Huawei, they grew up in and are based in China, and have owners in China, at a moment in which, in the US and in several other mostly but not exclusively Western countries, China is not a very popular place to be from. This is, arguably, a not totally unfair position to take. 
though like anything applied with a broad brush, it's almost certainly more relevant to some companies based in China than others. The two main concerns here, though, stem from competition and national security. The competition angle is that China, for decades, has been saying they would adhere to international standards when it comes to intellectual property, copyrights, patents, and other things of that nature, before turning around and then through espionage, legal maneuvering, and reverse engineering, taking technology from other countries and corporations and creators based in other countries, and ripping those things off to make their own version. Now, it's a fair question to ask why China doing this is any different from instances in which other countries have done the same over the centuries. Quite possibly, the main difference is that they're doing it now, and most of the larger countries of today, including the United States, primarily did it before we had our modern international legal system and accompanying expectations of fair play. It's also possible that they're being called out for it because they do it so much and so successfully compared to what other countries have done along the same vein in the past. China has made a whole sub-industry out of this, and they have become very, very good at it. And the national security concern has arisen as a result of China's steady and impressive climb, economically and militarily, the tight grip China's government has on its ostensibly free market-based companies, and its history of using those companies as adapters to plug into international markets while utilizing the powers of their single-party government to give those companies advantages that other companies do not enjoy, and to get advantages from those companies in return. Corporate entities in China, in other words, are generally assumed to be working hand-in-glove with the Chinese government to potentially, theoretically, give them information about people from other countries that they've collected through their hardware, their apps, and so on. A lot of this is speculative, but believable. I actually wouldn't put it past any government to make use of this kind of information and these sorts of relationships, given the opportunity. But China's economic system is inextricably tied to the government and its interests by design. So I don't think it's a huge leap to say that these concerns are at least warranted and based in reality. Even if we don't know for sure, we in the non-classified, non-national security world at least, that it's happening, based on a necessary abundance of tangible public evidence. But these concerns, real or imagined, have risen in prominence as China has risen in prominence. And that is unlikely to cease being the case anytime soon. And companies like Huawei and ByteDance, rightly or wrongly, will likely continue to be caught in the diplomatic crossfire as a consequence. Beyond the hard power getting information about individuals and feeding it to the military intelligence sort of leverage potential here, though, there's also the background concern that through TikTok and similar apps, China's government and Chinese entities may be able to leverage soft power that they accumulate to nudge things in their direction, to adjust the behaviors of other people and entities to be more favorable to them and their interests, rather than those of someone else. Soft power is what allows you to get what you want most of the time because others defer to you and your ability to help them or harm them, and you're able to get those additional benefits without firing a shot. What this means in practice is that should TikTok become a common channel through which new musical or performance talent is discovered, ByteDance and anyone who helps them make decisions could have new strings to pull 
when it comes to what sorts of messages become mainstream, what sorts of archetypes we celebrate and mimic, and who benefits from audio world success stories, potentially cutting out traditional middlemen to create new middlemen, and resultantly, new levers of power, which they control. So the main difference here would be that they control these levers rather than someone else controlling them. This isn't a matter of them taking over something that isn't already taken over, it's a matter of the puppet strings changing hands. But especially within countries and cultures that currently enjoy a great deal of soft power, like the United States and many other northern western countries, a challenge to that worldwide cultural hegemony can feel similar to having someone invade your sovereign shores, or at the very least, similar to someone raiding your bank account. Thus, an entity like ByteDance and a worldwide cultural sensation like TikTok can seem like threats to certain existing power structures, not only because of what they might represent in terms of national security, but what they might represent in terms of soft power transmission from one set of hands to another. It may be that once the current round of trade war rhetoric and tariff exchanges are no longer useful, provided they are, in fact, eventually set aside, rather than this representing a new normal, that companies like Huawei and ByteDance will no longer be targeted, and international regulators will instead turn their attention to other types of interlopers, novelties, and would-be soft power insurgents. It could also be, though, that alongside cyber warfare, orbital combat, and little green men-style proxy land-grab maneuvers of the kind utilized by Russia to steal Crimea from Ukraine, this sort of back-and-forth moves and counter-moves within the world of culture and entertainment becomes just one more always-on battleground for those who know what they're looking for and what they might gain if they utilize these powerful tools appropriately. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Fall, or Dodge in Hell, by Neil Stevenson. This is an absolutely epic tome, as books by Stevenson tend to be. Neil Stevenson is actually one of my all-time favorite science fiction, speculative fiction authors, and this book is no different. My usual rule for reading a book by Neil Stevenson is that it will take about the first third of the book to set up the world in which the rest of the book will take place. But then also, at some point, there is a good chance that the plot and characters and time, potentially, everything will shift pretty dramatically to the point where you're essentially reading a completely different story. But in every case so far, that preparation, all that reading, and those sudden shifts have all been worth it. These books tend to be very dense, very interesting, incredibly well thought out, and this book is no different. Fall is about neural uploading, so scanning a brain and uploading it into a computer. It's about life after death. There's some incredibly fascinating interludes that talk about what happens in the world when truth and fact cease to be things that even really have meaning, even above and beyond where things are now. An extrapolation on what we're experiencing now, really, that gets taken to some interesting and dangerous extremes. I don't want to give away too much, but you will at some point read the words tactical Jesus in an extremely hilarious and somewhat disturbing context. But this is also just a really fascinating book in terms of how we think about the afterlife, in terms of how we think about the life that we live, perhaps in the context where we know for absolute certain that there is an afterlife. 
and in terms of what it says about what it might actually be like to exist within a computer-based afterlife. If any of that sounds interesting to you, and if you are willing to set aside the time to read an absolutely massive but very worth it piece of fiction, consider picking up a copy of Fall or Dodge in Hell by Neil Stevenson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.